immersive audio podcast in conversation with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. Welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast brought to you by 1618 Digital. Today, Damien Murphy joins host Oliver Cadell in the studio. Damien is a professor of sound and music computing at the Department of Electronic Engineering, University of York, where he has been a member of academic staff since 2000. His research focuses on virtual acoustics, spatial audio, physical modeling, and audio signal processing. Professor Murphy is also an active sound artist and he is a founding member of Geodesic Arts, through which most of his more recent work has been produced. Today, Damien and Oliver discuss entering into academia and recreating the acoustics of environments. Professor Damien Murphy, welcome. Thank you very much. Delighted to be here, Oliver. How are you today? Good. A sort of few days working in London, finding out about sort of funding opportunities, meeting colleagues, and uh, glad we could get this scheduled in and do it properly rather than over Skype. It's nice to do it face to face. I know you've been traveling between cities in the UK. Thank you for finding time to come and see us today and answer some of our questions. Well, I'm going to dive in straight into your past. Okay. What got you interested in audio and how did you get into the industry? Okay, so I work in the audio industry and I work in my audio lab, all starting back through my interest in music. Very similar story to many other people in the field, I guess. I was a musician. I guess I was also kind of quite academically good at school, good at maths and science and that kind of thing. But always really interested in how sound works and how sound can be sculpted and designed. So as a guitar player, I was always interested in how I could use effects to create new sounds. And in fact, when I was doing my GCSEs way back. For my technology projects, I built my own guitar. So that was quite an interesting project in terms of, you know, thinking about design and thinking about more how it looked than how it sounded, to be honest. And learned some electronics as well and all that kind of thing. So that was a, a really good introduction and it looked great, but it played awfully, to be fair. It played really bad. I was not Brian May. That was quite an ambitious yeah. undertaking to try to build your own guitar. Yeah, it was. But my teachers were very supportive and I think they saw it as a bit of a challenge as well. And yeah, it was a great thing to have a go at. As you say, ambitious though. <laughs> Do you still have it? It's in bits because, as I say, it didn't quite play as well as I might have liked. And so I spent some of my sixth form redesigning bits of it and then it never got finished. So it's in bits in a box in a cupboard in my mum's house. So I still have it. Yeah. Are you considering giving it a second chance? No. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I'm curious, what was your very first immersive audio experience and how did you get into the whole niche of immersive audio? Okay, so I was very lucky in terms of the path I suppose my education and career took. I ended up going to the University of York, where I work now, but I went there to do a maths degree. But when I was there in the early 90s, when things like audio technology were, you know, not even as part of the mainstream as it is now, I bumped into a whole load of friends and people who were interested in music technology. And I realized there was a course that was called music technology. It was a master's course then. And I thought, wow, this no one ever told me about anything like that. And because it was everything I was interested in, it was about sound, it was about sound design, acoustics, instruments, music, and some of the sort of science and maths that I kind of was doing anyway. So at the end of my undergraduate degree, I applied to do this master's course at York. And back then, there were probably one or two or three places in the, in the UK who 
did anything like this. So I did my master's course, which was just a transformative experience. But as part of that, we did a course on recording techniques and surround sound um, because one of the teachers on the course back then, a guy called Dave Malham, had been instrumental in helping ambisonics become what it was. And back then, again, it was really experimental. It was, you know, tucked away in dark corners of journals and academic sort of departments and studios. But it was it was powerful opportunity to play with sound and to really kind of develop an immersive sound experience. Um, you know, it's even long before, you know, I think 5.1 was just about to become standardised then. So even surround sound in cinema wasn't as prevalent as it is now, or at least as common knowledge and commonplace as it is now. So that's what opened my eyes to the opportunity of this thing called spatial audio and immersive sound and what you can do with it. And I guess, you know, back then, a lot of it was done in analog hardware. And that was Dave's thing, really. He was an electronics engineer, and that was a lot of his background. But at the same time, maybe a few years later than that, when I was doing my PhD, Dave Malham and his colleague, Tony Myatt, who's now at University of Surrey, wrote a journal article for something called the Computer Music Journal. But they looked at how you could do ambisonics in software. Because all the problems of designing good ambisonics was all about doing analog hardware design. It was really difficult to do it and to do it well and to do it economically. But you could do it in software dead easy. And so they put out this paper that sort of explored how you could use ambisonics and spatial audio uh, in software in something called C-Sound, do it digitally and use it as a compositional tool. So they kind of, you know, paved the way for a lot of the work that's come since and that we're really seeing a resurgence in now and a change in now and benefiting from because after their work in using this sort of C-Sound music language, then people started to develop VST plugins, including actually Dave Malham himself did some really early VST plugins that allowed you to do ambisonics decoding and ambisonic encoding and that sort of you know opened the door to other people experimenting and exploring and more tools became available more software became available and suddenly you know there's been this huge resurgence of interest in immersive audio technology in all its forms with ambisonics a key part of it as we sort of enter the world of vr ar xr yeah it's incredible how far we've come in the past several years and the kind of industrial necessity and the widespread application of those formats really pushed the envelope. And obviously, there's been a lot of investment of resources from all kinds of directions and corners of the industry. And it's just the beginning. I hope so. Well, you know, I guess that's an interesting point. You know, a lot of what we're, I suppose, using again now and refining because there is an industry need for it. I remember Dave talking about this way back when I was still a postgraduate student and uh, it had been explored then. But there wasn't the workflows, there wasn't the need, there wasn't a desire to consume immersive material. It was really difficult to get immersive material or immersive content to the consumer back then. Again, it was before DVD even, you know, and VR headsets and everything else. Well, there was the first generation of VR back then but audio wasn't really a part of that so it's really transformative now and it's really quite exciting actually yeah and the, the whole philosophy about the use of those tools has changed as well some of the offering tools for the content are available for pretty much anyone for free and you can just create your own stuff and just put it online instantly on facebook and youtube whatnot and it's been democratized to absolute maximum yeah, it has, I think. And I think part of that is probably from the sort of the experimental academic and also creative community having done that for a long period of time through developing their VST plugins and so on and enabling people to use them. 
And I guess none of the core algorithms aren't really patented. So there's not a lot of money to be made out of them. But, you know, even recently, so I did a workshop with um, a theatre group a few weeks ago, and that was my first time to sit down and actually get to grips with the Facebook 360 spatial workstation plugins that they have for Reaper and Pro Tools and so on. And it was so easy to use, you know, so easy. So, yeah, really, as you say, democratizing tools to enable you to be creative with this idea of immersive sound. Yeah. I'm wondering, how did you get into higher education and then moved on to the research and academia properly? I've mentioned already that I was fortunate that I did my undergraduate program in a place that was pretty unusual back then. So that was lucky. But then I also, I guess I really got into this idea of, well, two things, immersive sound and then also modelling and recreating the acoustics of environments. Uh, so rooms, you know, back then it would have been thinking about reverb and, and that kind of thing. And uh, an opportunity became available to work with another, you know, influential colleague of mine, Professor David Howard back then. And he sort of saw that I had an idea and he kind of said, yep, yeah, let's see if we can do this. And he was able to get some funding and a PhD place for me. So it was the PhD really that sort of enabled me then to develop my own research. So to take the ideas that I'd been using creatively and that I'd learned about and actually to try and then develop something new. So that's how I, I got immersed in the research, I guess, through that process. What audio courses are offered in the University of York and how they differ compared to other universities? Okay, so that's a good question as well. You know, York has this long tradition of doing music technology and doing music technology from a perspective of bringing people who are interested in music and have a good sort of math science background. And so York is a little bit unusual in what it offers now. So I'm in the electronic engineering department, but I'm a part of the audio lab as part of that. We take in students who want to be engineers ultimately, want to work in electronics. So they do analog electronics, digital electronics, software programming, but they also do about sort of 20 to 25% of their courses in audio and acoustics and music technology. So we turn out electronic engineers who have got an expertise in music and audio. And they probably come from a very sort of similar trajectory that to what I did. You know, they're probably good at school, at maths and physics and science, but they're interested in music and they want something that combines those two things together. So that's a very sort of established route. We have a master's program in audio and music technology in our department. And the master's program is much more multidisciplinary. So we get students coming to us who've done undergraduate degrees in a whole range of things. So engineering, physics, psychology, art, music technology, but who are interested in wanting to either build up the science background so that they can start to develop their own software and their own tools to do be creative or to explore their creativity in other ways. And so that's kind of the natural successor to the music technology degree that I did. And then there's a PhD program as well in our department as well. We have a lab full of PhD researchers working in various aspects of immersive audio and uh, music technology. Then I have colleagues in our music department and they take a much more practice-based approach to this. So if you are a composer or someone who works in sound art, then there's both undergraduate and master's opportunities and research opportunities there to, to establish your practice and to learn about that. And also music production as well, they do now. And then I have colleagues who work in theatre, film and television and they have a sound design track. So if you come to York, you've got multiple ways of starting off your interest or career in audio. If you want to do the science and the engineering and the audio technology, you come to us in Electronic Engineering Audio Lab. If you're a composer, if you're a sound artist, you go to our music department 
if you want to do more music production, you go to our music department. If it's sound design, more for theatre, film, TV, storytelling with sound, then that's our Department of Theatre, Film and TV and their sound design courses. So it's a bit confusing, but hopefully I've painted a picture. Yeah, it definitely sounds very comprehensive. Yeah, uh, I think so. There's all kinds of flavours and options for pretty much everyone. Flavours and options can be confusing, but I guess it depends on where you're coming from, really, uh, as to what's the right path for you to go. Fantastic. Your research appears to cover many topics from acoustics to vocal tract. What can you tell us about your findings during those research projects and how these topics connect in general? Okay, so fundamentally, although I do have a broad range of, of researchers working for me, working on quite diverse areas, but fundamentally, it's all about sound environments and how we model them or synthesize them or experience them. And so, you know, my core work, the work that I probably do least of now, but it's still really of interest to me is in how we simulate, model the acoustics of rooms. So how we can, you know, predict what concert halls are going to sound like, develop sort of sound spaces that have never been heard before that we can use creatively. And there's lots of sort of acoustics that needs to be understood and developed there to enable us to do that accurately. But it ranges now. So I have, you know, a great project now, which is about trying to use machine learning and understand what our sound environment is like. So can a computer tell us by listening that we are in the middle of an urban street versus in a rural park? Uh, just by, you know, we can do that like dead easy as human beings, but machines try and have to think a little bit more hard about what the difference is between a road and what it sounds like and a park and what it sounds like. So we're doing lots more work in that area, but it's still fundamentally about sound environments and how we perceive and understand them and what, how we listen to them. And even things such as, you know, the vocal track. So that's a little bit different in that it's a, not really about a sound environment we immerse ourselves in, but the principles that we use in trying to simulate a room or a sort of enclosed sound environment to generate a reverberant effect, for instance, is exactly the same principle we can use to simulate how sound waves propagate through our vocal tract. It's just a really, really small, quite moist and sticky room. <laughs> but the principles are effectively the same so that we can synthesize speech. And then, of course, if we can synthesize speech well, we can place it in a nice sort of sound environment that we've simulated as well. And we've got the whole thing simulated from sound source to the listening experience. I find those topics absolutely fascinating. And I truly believe that at the moment, perhaps it's not given the adequate amount of attention by you know, authorities, government, and as the population grows across the world, I think the noise pollution is becoming absolute fundamental problem. And whilst it's not on the same level with global climate change and global warming and whatnot, I think it's definitely going to become a wider issue as we move forward. And doing research today is going to be critical to find solutions that can mitigate all the risks and potentially quite severe consequences for us as species. Very true. You know, we, we live in a noisy world and our world gets even noisier and there's lots of data to tell us the impact that noise has on our well-being ultimately. You know, it disturbs our sleep patterns, it makes us tense and angry and it causes health issues in ways that are not sort of directly obvious but have a long-term impact on our wider health and well-being. A lot of work is done to try and understand and mitigate against noise and the impact it has on us and it's a difficult thing but I think people are starting to realize that's becoming more important. For instance, I've just done some work with some colleagues at a company called ACOM and the Highways Agency on simulating the sound as a consequence of the proposed new A303 bypass that's going past Stonehenge. 
So there's a busy, busy road that goes past Stonehenge. They want to change the environment so that it's more rural and that the road isn't a distractor. And as part of that process, they've rather than just, you know, they've done some nice visualizations and they do nice sort of plots in terms of and plans as to what this is going to look like. But part of it is doing sound models so that you can go and look and listen to what the impact of changing the direction of the road is going to be because you may live very close by and suddenly that road that wasn't close to you, yes, it, it's being diverted from Stonehenge, for instance, but if it's going closer to a village or town, then uh, it might have more of an impact on people there. So uh, that's becoming an important thing. And that aspect of thinking about infrastructure and significant planning developments um, and the sound impact of that is starting to become more important, I think. I think it's an absolute classic issue in the world of architecture, particularly in the past several decades, the people cared more about what things look like before anything else, and then perhaps trying to fit into budgets and really not paying attention to acoustics. But then acoustics could be so important that could essentially render the whole project inadequate for the purpose it served at first place. And it's refreshing to see that that attitude is changing across the spectrum. I think it is changing, but I guess, you know, as people who are interested in sound, the people working on the sound side of things are always way down the budget list. <laughs> There's always a fraction of the bigger budget, whatever project it is, whether it's, you know, unless it's music, of course, that's different. But if you're thinking about sound as part of a bigger production, it's always down the bottom of the list. But we, we do our best to fight that corner and to make sure that people realise the importance of it, whether it's, again, in a big engineering project like planning a road or whether it's in, you know, the sound design that has to be done to the very best quality for a creative project like a film or TV programme or something. You have worked on staggering 130 academic articles and research papers. What do you consider when preparing to take a new research project? How do you decide what to focus on? Okay, so one can be very practical about it. One of two things. Is it a project that can get funded? That's really practical. You know, we rely on funding to enable our staff and students to do what they want to do. So it's about thinking about what might be fundable. So therefore, it's thinking about challenges that are relevant to society, ultimately. The other part of it is the great students that come and want to work in our lab and they come with their own ideas. I can give them ideas, I can give them projects to work on, but I'm very interested to hear what they've got to say, what ideas they bring. And so ultimately, if they can get me excited in what they want to do, or I can get excited about what I think we should be doing and we can find a way of enabling some funding for that, then that to me is a good project. Whatever happens, I always come back also to this idea that whatever I'm doing, whether it is some sort of complex algorithm for acoustic sound propagation or whether it's testing how people perceive particular sound environments, ultimately I think there has to be a creative use for it. It has to have an output, it has to be listened to, people have to enjoy it, people have to use it creatively and create something new from it. So the creative use of what we do is the thing that I guess I always go back to and think about, is this going to be useful to someone? Is someone going to use it? If I can say yes to that, then it becomes much easier to think about the wider aspects of how we get the project to work. At the University of York, you are the research champion for creativity what gained you that title and what does it entail exactly? Okay, that's a good question. So um, our university decided a number of years ago, about sort of four or five years ago now, to develop a research strategy. It's the kind of thing that big institutions always do. And it wanted to think about what are the things that bring together people across the diverse community of our institution from 
our engineering departments through to our English department, for instance. And so our institution articulated these seven grand themes that enable people to come together and work under that theme rather than just working on their own in their own particular area. And there are things that one shouldn't be surprised by. It's things like justice and equality, it's health and well-being. But the one that really attracted me was creativity because, as I already mentioned, you know, a good project to me is something where there's a creative output ultimately. And I've also benefited hugely over my career by working with other people and working with other people that aren't necessarily the people you'd go and speak to normally because you see them every day in your department or your group. There's lots of advantages to working with people from different backgrounds, different ideas, different contexts. And so the whole aspect of these themes was to bring people together and each theme was going to have a champion appointed as being kind of the the human face of the theme, the person who can help to bring things together and help to realise what this theme is going to be about. And so I applied and then I got it, as did all my other six other colleagues, my six other champions. So there are seven champions at the University of York and we're all there sort of trying to fly the flag for our particular theme and mine is creativity and I'm you know, very lucky to have that. I work with brilliant people and I work with people that I wouldn't normally have, have, have worked with at the institution and uh, we're always trying to encourage and to sort of prime new, exciting, interesting projects where creativity is a significant part. But also, so my sort of direction on that is very much about creative practice. It's very much about how digital technology influences creativity but I'm also very happy for my colleagues to come and tell me what they think creativity is. As you're involved in research, can you talk about some of the advances that you have observed or have been involved, uh, you and your colleagues, within immersive audio that are yet to be introduced to the commercial industry sector or have done in the past, perhaps? I guess a lot of the work that we do is kind of, you know, as we'd say, the cutting edge of the field. But it's also about, I guess, there's not necessarily a huge return in terms of the next stage of step of quality that you might expect from what's there already. But what we're trying to do is to make immersive technology, our work in sound modeling and more generally, to really try and understand it better so that we can develop solutions or tools or workflows to enable people to be more creative. So, you know, some of the work we're doing at the moment is trying to understand optimal surround sound formats. It's trying to understand binaural listening experiences. You know, how can we develop binaural methods that enable us to give a 3D immersive sound experience that works for everybody because at the moment it's a bit hit and miss. Some people perceive it as you want it to be perceived, other people don't. So there's lots of work that's been going on in those areas for some time actually and is ongoing I think. But probably I'd say that the real sort of next stage transformative aspect of our area of immersive technology that we're making a small contribution to is how immersive technology does become democratised as part of the audio production process. So I still think we're learning a lot about what that actually means. You know, I know I think colleagues in the visual sort of cinematic screen industries area are thinking a lot about this, about what cinematic VR actually means versus just putting a headset on and having an immersive experience. It's thinking about what do we want our audiences to, to get from the experience and how do we curate and design for that. It's a very different thing being in a truly immersive VR type world versus looking at something on a 2D screen where you've only got that screen to look at and to effectively to to listen into as well. 
I think that's probably where the next big sort of steps are going to come. There's lots that we're still going to be doing in terms of improving the listening experience for people so that they go, wow, when they put the headphones on every time. But I think the biggest wow factor will be in the creative practice behind that and how people learn and use these tools to get these experiences in such a way that it's a completely new art form. Rather than at the moment, you know, we're kind of shoehorning all sorts of things together into this field in terms of what we know about film production, TV production, sound design, VR in general, and it's becoming something new. And when we understand that, that's that's going to be very transformative, I think. Yeah, typically it always boils down to the fact that technology is an enabler and content is a king. Exactly. We can design the best algorithms, the best software, the best plugins in the world, and we can show in our papers that what we've done is 90% of the time better than anything else that's out there. But if no one uses it and doesn't apply that idea in their own content, then it's only worth so much, I think, yeah. Damien, you are a founding member of Geodesic Arts. What can you tell us about this organisation and your involvement and what kind of work you produce there? Okay, so Geodesic Arts is, uh, we are an arts collective. We're a, a bunch of friends, colleagues who've worked together on various artistic projects over a, a long period of time. We have a diverse range of skills. I'm the sort of sound and musician guy. We have a guy who's great at doing sort of interactive design and hardware design, photographer, poet, filmmaker, production manager. You know, we've worked together in various combinations of colleagues over a long period of time. For a particular project, we had to formalize our organization. And so we came up with this idea of calling ourselves geodesic arts. And the name comes from that uh, a geodesic structure uh, is sort of one of these sort of hexagonal dome things. And the more elements you add to the structure, the stronger it gets. You see what we were doing there. And so we started off with maybe three or four of us, worked with other colleagues since who've become part of our very loose organization. And we've worked on all sorts of interesting art projects over, again, probably about 10 years or so. Some big, some small, depending on where our interests are and what opportunities are in front of us as a group of people. And we sit down, we meet up probably more so than we do actually sort of work these days, but we always talk about trying to develop new projects as part of that, maybe on our own, maybe together, maybe in pairs, maybe as a whole group. I think it's a quite nice segue to my next question. Which project that you've been involved with you're most proud of and perhaps why? Okay, that, that's a really challenging question. I'm going to give you two answers, not, not just one. Typical academic answer. So one is actually the project that brought geodesic arts together. It was a big project. It was a, a long project. And it was something called Me, Myself and MRI. Uh, that was a project that we had funding from the Wellcome Trust for, and it was about the idea of portraiture. What is a portrait and why do we have this tradition of um, painting or taking photographs of ourselves or whatever as a sense of our identity? And so we worked with various sort of contemporary arts practices to develop portraits of six individuals from just everyday walks of life, not sort of, you know, people who are sort of, you know, put on a pedestal or politicians or celebrities or whatever, just people who were actually selected by the school group we were working with. We interviewed them. We uh, went to their workplace we took photographs of them we did video sort of representation or video responses to what we learned 
about these individuals. I constructed these quite complex sound portraits, and then we brought the whole thing together into these interactive portraits based around flat screen monitors, and the, the exhibition toured around. The key part of it was we used MRI technology, so magnetic resonance imaging technology to look at these people's brains. Because, you know, we can use this clever medical technology now to see inside our bodies and to understand to a certain extent how our brains work. But it doesn't really tell us much about what makes an individual an individual. And that comes through the stories they tell, their history, the work they do, their families, what they're interested in. And so we can take beautiful medical images, but if we want to find out about what makes a person tick, we need to go a bit deeper. So that was a brilliant, brilliant project to work on. And I say it, it toured around various places, galleries. Um, we put it into our local hospital as well, which was a very different experience. We got really rewarding feedback because of the nature of the audience you've got in a hospital versus an art gallery, you know. So that was a great personal project to work on. Very challenging, a lot of work, but something I think we're still quite proud of. The other project I'd mention is more to do with my academic work and it's a creative project again and it's all to do with sound and space and immersion and we had a project about sound and heritage a few years ago and uh, we were thinking about how sound is an important part of understanding our heritage and our history and as part of this process we hired the cathedral in York Minster which is one of the biggest cathedrals in Europe. Sounds amazing. Uh, reverb time of eight seconds at one kilohertz. And, you know, it's a really important heritage icon, a religious icon, a tourist icon, but it sounds amazing. So we booked the place for an evening and we turned it over to about half a dozen sound artists to use as they wanted to. And so they explored the acoustics and the sound of York Minster in ways that you would never normally experience the place. So that ranged from, we had a laptop musician called Craig Veer, and sound artist who, who'd spent some time in the Antarctic sort of science program. He had these amazing recordings of icebergs and just the sounds of the Antarctic, which he played through this amazing acoustic. We had really small intimate pieces that were focused on, for instance, you know, the people who worked at the Minster and telling their stories of what it's like to work in this big iconic space. We had live performance from choirs, we had installation works. It was just really sort of special event really to just um, give artists the opportunity to use this huge sound canvas to explore their practice and it was really quite a, a special evening, quite proud of that one. But that was more, you know, I facilitated it rather than actually did the sound art myself, but it was a great thing to be part of and to help others do that. Amazing project. I wish I could be there. You had a really diverse career and experience and you probably met a lot of people that you have mentored as well as learned from. Could you give us a piece of advice to someone who wants to enter the industry or career in academia, higher education in the audio industry? Okay, so it's a tough industry these days, but it's a big industry. It's much bigger than it used to be, I guess. If I was saying to someone, and indeed I say to you know students who come and apply to our courses what they should do, or speaking to kids in schools who are interested in this kind of thing, I'd always say, you know, work on the science and maths because that's going to keep you going, you know, and that will build you a career in anything you want to do, ultimately. 
And if you want that to be in the audio industry, that'll be brilliant because we need good people who understand the science and maths of audio. And the other part of it is to be creative in what you do ultimately and to see why the science and maths has a purpose. And I think we're really lucky in our field in that when one's interested in music, audio, sound, you know, it's part of our everyday lives and it can have a really powerful and impactful impression or can leave a very powerful and impactful sort of impression on us, whether that's through music, through the soundtrack to a film, whether it's through listening to, you know, the great sound design in a game uh, or just listening to our world, you know. So sound is very powerful, very evocative, but to understand it, you need some basic tools. So that's some science and math. So I'd say keep working at that. But think about the bigger picture and think about why you're interested in that and think about being creative and always try and create something great. So that's my advice, I guess, for people coming through. If people want to particularly work in the audio industry, there are lots of good routes into it now. I think you've got to have that wider interest in the field. I think it doesn't matter whether you're an academic institution looking for great students or if you're a company looking for great people to come and work for you. They want to see that spark or fire. They want to hear about the projects that you're working on just because you're working on them because they're exciting, because they're interesting, because you really want them to succeed, apart from your academic experience or your work experience. And so I think that sort of fire drive and passion is is really, really important. And again, for someone wanting to get a good position somewhere, having that kind of portfolio behind you is always really important as well, I think. So some goods, you know, basic sort of school, college, university education, coupled with passion for what you do and some kind of creative portfolio that shows what you can do. They're the things that will get you through the door, I think. A quick follow-up questions. In addition to an opportunity for young individuals to learn science, maths, etc. at school, GCCs, and then further down higher education, are there any options that you could perhaps recommend for people who could just take that an additional curriculum as a hobbit or just to polish their chops, you know, in something new and exciting. Another way to support your interests and activities in the area, I guess, is through, we've already talked about it, the democratisation of creative tools. Laptops come with so much power. Your phone comes with so much power. And there's lots of things out there to help you get started and to explore your audio creativity or your music creativity. And they will help you to, as you say, develop your chops in the area and support the other things that you do. Buy a Mac, you kind of get GarageBand for free and GarageBand is brilliant at what it does. And there are lots of other pieces of software out there as well. You know, another great piece of transformative software has been Reaper, I think, most recently. It's a fully functional digital audio workstation. Most people can afford it and it gives you so much power and flexibility so that's got to be great and you know I think again particularly if you're working in the audio music industry I think having some kind of musical interest there is really important so your ability to sort of play something or to understand music you know you might not have qualifications in it but if you know one end of an instrument from another and can get some sound out of it then that helps hugely as well that's a brilliant piece of advice thank you Damien thank you very much it's been a pleasure Oliver it's been brilliant happy to chat Uh, some really good questions really challenging questions it's been great thank you You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast hosted by Oliver Cadell with guest Damian Murphy. This episode was produced by Gillian Duffy, Oliver Cadell and Giacomo Corpino and included music by Nobs Bergamo. Thanks for listening.